0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Me Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I'm bringing on my friend, Christine, who uh, we're going to, this is part one of a two-part interview with Christine and a member of the, a faithful member of the FLDS. But before we get into that interview, I want to introduce Christine because Christine is sort of... A bridge maker, she's the one that has a very unique opportunity to have an in with the FLDS community right now. And she's generous enough to sort of share that insight with all of you. But let's talk about who Christine is first. Christine, can you say hello?
1: Hey. Hi,
0: everybody. So, Christine, tell us tell us who you are and why you're involved with the FLDS.
1: Okay. So, let's see. Oh, I'll just tell you my story really quickly. I was raised in Michigan I was searching for a religion when I was a teenager, and I ended up finding the Mormon Church and essentially converting myself because there were no missionaries in our area. So I was baptized on the day of my 18th birthday because my parents were completely against it, and um, I loved it. I loved the church. It gave meaning to my life and made me very happy, so I became a missionary, and I loved that. I broke tons of missionary records and When I was done with my mission, my mission president asked me to write a book about how, you know, I was able to get in so many doors. So I did. And then I wrote also um, a book called Turn Your Little Ones into Book of Mormon with kids. And then, you know, I I was married in the temple, married for 13 years, had four children, very devout, very devout testimony. Then I divorced because things didn't work out like I um, like I thought they would, you know, living a wholesome Mormon life, and it didn't really matter when it came to my marriage. Anyway, so when I was divorced, I ended up getting um, sort of lured into a fundamentalist thing, and that gave me a lot of trauma And a lot of experience that I thought I would not recover from. And in fact, it was so devastating. Um, It wasn't like a big group or anything, but it was so devastating to me that I, you know, I was planning my funeral because I couldn't, I couldn't take it anymore. So even though I only, you know, had that experience for just under a year, it was enough to give me a lot of compassion for
0: people who find themselves in these um high demand groups. And Christine, can yeah. I ask you a question about that? What is it about fundamentalism that drew you into it? Well, that's a great question.
1: I, you know, I heard all of these you uh, know these conversations in, you know, in the halls during Relief Society about how if you, you know, if you want to be the very best Mormon you could be, you would be you would be a polygamist. There would be polygamy in heaven. Um, I believed in, you know, the the women's, con- you know, sort of like the pro-women concept, which says, you know, you have other sister wives. They help you. They'll watch your children. You can do what you want. It's like this big, happy family. And, um that was appealing. I didn't have this this personal sense of jealousy or possession over my husband, and I thought, well, maybe I was meant to be one of the ones to be in fundamentalism, and but me, primarily I wanted to be, you know, as righteous in God's eyes as I could possibly be. So I felt open to it and sort of drawn to it, you know. My experience, however, was an eye opener, and I know that my personal experience cannot be used to paint every fundamentalist with my own paintbrush. So I'm not going to do that. But what I will say is that the gift of that experience is that I, you know, I feel in a small way, like I can understand what people are going through once when they're inside. So I'm not a complete outsider. When it comes to fundamentalism, I had my my um, refiner's fire.
0: Okay, so you have some experience with fundamentalism. Talk about where that led you after in your academic career.
1: So the interesting thing to myself was trying to understand how my brain could have done that. How could I have fallen for things that that I now, you know, see as so irrational? So I began really studying the the brain aspect of thought control and, you know, cult mind control and all that. And so now for the past 17 years, I have been trying to help people who have come out of religious oppression or human trafficking. You know, it's a very similar manipulation tech tactic that they use, whether it's in Um, whether it's in a high demand group or whether it's with a trafficker, because the chains are psychological and the psychological chains are the most powerful. So I did a lot of work with human trafficking um, and that was awesome and amazing. And I also have taken in um, people who've left different fundamental group, fundamentalist groups, but I I went on to get a, a master's degree an MBA, and then a master's in media psychology. And right now I'm finishing my dissertation, my PhD dissertation in media psychology, which is social psychology. So all of it has been very helpful so that I can understand, um, you know, people and groups and uh, motivations and behaviors um, in, in a deeper way.
0: So another thing that you're not talking about that I'm going to brag for you, you've done a lot of work with uh, survivors of human trafficking and abuse and, you know, people that have come out of polygamous groups. And do you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, That's that's a really special experience because people are so vulnerable and I've primarily worked with females, but they're so they're so precious and lost but yet resilient you know they they have a strength in them if they came out of it and they um decided to to you know try to take their life back they're incredibly resilient and they can turn their own experience into post-traumatic growth so you've heard of post-traumatic stress disorder well for people who you know who are super resilient that can turn into post-traumatic growth which means they're stronger and more psychologically healthy than before they started so I don't want to paint the people who've come out of these things as you know even though they're vulnerable I don't want to paint them as weak victims or anything like that they're you know they're survivors and warriors and and that's been a a tremendous you know a tremendous life experience for me to get to know these amazing women
0: so let's talk about uh, the episode we're going to do tonight. Now, um, there are, if it sounds strange, this is the first episode. The other one is going to be the second episode, which I'm going to edit a little bit. But uh, the second episode was actually recorded first. We kind of did it out of order. So um, if it sounds strange, that's why. Uh, we thought the second episode gets into some. Some current struggles that FLDS are facing, and so we really wanted to frame it first, so you could get to know the guest on our podcast. And I have to, and Christine is going to frame this more, but I'm going to I'm going to frame it a little bit, and Christine, you can kind of fill in or uh, cover what I don't cover. So uh, most people assume that when we are down in Short Creek or we're helping with the FLDS, that uh, we're actually helping faithful FLDS. That's not usually true. We're usually helping people that are getting out of the FLDS or who have just left the FLDS or who have been out for a while. As you know, the FLDS group um, has been run by a prophet Warren Jeffs for the last few decades. And um, the group has become increasingly uh, more secluded and secretive. And so it's very, it's actually very rare to talk to a faithful member of the FLDS. In fact, Christine, maybe you can tell me this, but when was the last time the FLDS spoke publicly when they weren't in court?
1: Well, I don't actually know, but I do say, I mean, I do know that they told me that the last time they let somebody actually in like this was Oprah Winfrey.
0: So I don't know what that means. but And that was in the early 2000s, right? You know, it
1: was during... You know, it was uh, it was in Texas, and I know a lot of she she a lot of um, activists like were very angry with with Oprah because she went in there and just painted it as you know um, such a beautiful life. And I was even upset with her, you know, thinking, "Wow, you're you're giving all this this positive media when all all these dark things are happening behind closed doors." But you know what? Now that I've been here and you know, F.L.D.S. have become some of my very best friends in the world. I have a totally different opinion,
0: and in fact we're going to talk about that. But this is this is the tricky dance that's going to happen on this episode, and you certainly hear the tension in the next episode because we did that first. Christine and I, in the work that we do, especially with uh, survivors of abuses from these groups we see the hurt that um, some of these doctrines and some of these groups can cause. And so when we talk to the other side, it's sometimes seen as a slap in the face or disloyal. And so Christine and I are going to be very careful because we in no way want to dishonor or dismiss the pain that a lot of people have felt. Christine, do you want to talk about that tension a little bit?
1: Right. You know, every person's story is real and it's, and it's so filled with just layers of anguish that those of us on the outside could never understand. So it's it's tricky for me to be saying positive things about the FLDS when I know that it's it might trigger people who've come out and it's um but but I'm in this unique situation and I want to I want to make that disclaimer it's pretty well known. I was um, a, a very vocal anti polygamy activist for years. I did a lot of writing and speaking against polygamy in general because it. it I mean, research shows it creates, you know, lower um, um, lower life expectancy, more infant mortality, less education, more poverty, and just a slew of negative um, results to, especially to women and children. But now that I'm here, my husband and I lived in Las Vegas, and we moved here. We're both photographers, but he's a real photographer and producer and software developer. And I've just been focusing on school um, uh, the past little while here. And we moved here to get away from the city, to be closer to Zion, to um, you know help out with some humanitarian projects here that were pretty big. and. I never in a million years dreamed that I that FLDS would even talk to me, let alone, you know, become such a a wonderful part of my life. And I want to say that. And I want to say that I know that there are lots of parts of the story that we don't talk about. And I actually do that on purpose because what part of my training includes being um, personally trained by Steve Hassan, who is the world's foremost cult expert, he wrote Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and so on. And I recommend those books. Anyway, and I've read a you know a lot of other books. I speak for the International Cultic Studies Association. I'll be speaking in France this summer, and I'm excited. But anyway, I have a train I have training in these high demand groups. And when I met when I would see Um, FLDS I would introduce myself and and it it, I mean that's just how it started so I don't know I mean I started actually in the flood I was over here helping with the rescue effort and mingling with active FLDS in the flood and then when I came back some of them remembered me and I met I met Irene in a gas station when she um, um she was there with a friend and I just went up to her and I told her that we just photographed a bunch of pictures of an eviction which were really it was a really an emotional experience for me and I told her about it and I said I'm sorry for what you're going through and that was the icebreaker. so we posted these photos on Facebook and you know thinking wow we have so much compassion for these people this just can't be right and that caused us to really delve into that issue of you know, the, uh, of these, uh, of these evictions. And, and, and it made us think, wow, it, it, this doesn't feel right. So since that time I've read, you know, thousands of pages in court documents and other documents that have educated me on, you know, the background of these things. And I also, I've heard so many stories of people who've left. So I know it's a very complicated narrative. Nonetheless, the people who are here, are they're just beautiful kind-hearted people who, who want to serve Heavenly Father and and one of the most shocking things what to me was when I was talking to one of the young men he finally opened up it's not easy to get them to open up you know but he finally opened up and he said would you like me to email you what what we believe and I said absolutely and to my shock what he emailed was, the articles of faith, the same articles of faith with the exception of one little clause. But it was the same articles of faith that I believed for all those years as a mainstream Mormon. And yes, I, sent it, I yes, sent it to you, that, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, you sent it to me. Do you want me to link, link it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that would be interesting. Now, did that surprise you?
1: Well, yeah. did you already
0: I'm, know that? I mean, I knew that. I I think that. I think what surprised me actually was, and we talk about this in the second episode when I met Mother Irene and I was able to have a lot of the myths dispelled. I think what is hard about this is that, and, and for my part, what we're talking about, the, the majority of the work that I do is is with who the FLDS would call apostates. And you and I. We're very explicit in the next episode that we do not agree with that rhetoric. We think it's damaging. And yet some apostates, quote unquote apostates, would be hurt knowing that I'm giving platform to a faithful member because from their perspective, they've heard that that perspective their entire lives and it wounded them. I and, know. And so but but for me in the work that I do, my this is my opinion. Um, I believe that the sickness in our in our Mormon communities comes from secrecy and shame. And when we stay isolated from each other and we have the us versus them mentality, that does a lot of harm on both sides. So in an effort to practice what I preach, I try to give platform to both sides and voices to both sides. And it's, and it's been a struggle for me because I've had to meet a lot of these active members of these fundamentalist communities and see them as human beings. And that challenges me. Because it's really easy when I see them as the other, you know, that I can tell their story easier. But Irene certainly complicates that for us, right?
1: Right, right. So one of the things I was hoping to talk about is this myth that people think that they just have a choice. Now, let me talk about human trafficking for a second. When Let's suppose that you have a, um, a young woman who... You know, she falls in love with somebody and he convinces her to do, you know, um, commit prostitution. And then she, she reaches and she agrees. And then she wants to leave and she can't because now she's under coercion and threats and so on. In human trafficking law, the moment that. There is an introduction of force, fraud, co- or coercion. What was consent is now coercion. So just because you consent at one stage doesn't mean that consent extends into eternity. So even if people consent, let's say to have, I mean, to live in um, a plural relationship, if force, fraud, coercion or the exploitation of a vulnerability or um, the abuse of power, if those come into play, then that muddies up the entire conversation about consent. Now, another interesting thing is that, you know, it's easy. It's easy to say, well, you know, if they believed it, they deserved it. And that's, that's really a, a, that's not a compassionate viewpoint because you believe in, in somebody when, when you're having fraud committed against you, it's because you believed it. In the court, they don't say, well, we're not going to count this as fraud because you believed it. That is the whole point of fraud. So let's suppose that somebody's in a you know, a fundamentalist group somewhere, and it, turned out, it turns out that their particular prophet, as in my case, was actually knowingly being deceptive and manipulative and never believed any of it. The fact that I believed it doesn't take away the fact that he committed a crime. And when there is, when there is coercion of any kind, that includes psychological coercion, that nullifies consent. I mean, I mean, think about it in a contract sense. If you are coerced to sign a contract, when you're coerced to sign a contract, that contract would be invalidated. If there's force, fraud, or coercion in a human trafficking situation, I mean, force. if there's force, fraud, or coercion in a situation where a woman's being exploited, then it becomes human trafficking instead of willing prostitution. And free choice involves free choice. There's a situation called a bounded reality, like in fundamentalist groups, that's where you don't really have a free choice because your entire reality is set up so that you have bounded choices. And that was introduced by a psychologist named Yanya Leilich, and I. Um, she wrote Take Back Your Life. A bounded choice means that you really have only one choice that you can make. You don't have a palette of choices. So according to her, this impacts free will. So the whole concept of choice and coercion is it's on a continuum. And, and one of the reasons I say this is because there are a lot of women who come out of human trafficking or out of fundamentalist groups who continue to blame themselves and beat themselves up for things that they did when they were in their group. But I want, I want them to stop doing that because if, it, if you acted according to the best of your beliefs and you made those decisions because you thought if you didn't, you know, you would lose your soul, then you get a free pass. You know, you did the best you could and with what you knew. So rather than, you know, walk around with, with guilt over what could have been, just know you did the best you had, the best you could with what you knew. So so that's, that's one thing I really wanted to share is that what looks like free will, sometimes it isn't. And at and at the same time, like let's talk about these evictions. The the evictions. Uh, one of the reasons the evictions are happening is because the FLDS won't sign the occupancy agreements, and they believe that if they sign this agreement, they will lose their standing in the church. They will, in other words, they will be excommunicated, cast out, and they won't they won't be celestial. So there you have. They have sort of coercion to not sign these agreements so is it really their choice that they don't sign these agreements? Well it's their religious belief you know and it's the way, the way they get meaning in their lives is to live their religion and that's their happiness so I think it's just an unfortunate thing that the government would even require the um, um, the FLDS, to sign an agreement with people that they consider apostates as a condition to stay in their homes. It's just not that easy. It's not a matter of I mean you have to understand how the brain works. I mean, when you when you're when you're making decisions, if you're thinking rationally, you're thinking with your prefrontal cortex or, or the you know um, the, the upper part of your brain. When you think emotionally, it's with a lower part of your brain. Or the amygdala and so when you have emotions like fear like the fear that you will lose your soul or lose your family if you don't comply that's your emotional brain thinking and that is I mean we need to have compassion for that and understand that these are vulnerable people and if the you know if the court did not like bring in social psychologists and and, and have an explanation on why it's impossible for the FLDS to, you know, to sign those
0: occupancy agreements and and stay in their homes, then, then I think that I think the court was was remiss. So we're gonna get into that whole struggle in the next episode, but um because that might not make a lot of sense for people who don't have the context, and we're gonna explain that sort of dilemma that you're talking about. So this context of consent is really important for that. Today we're going to bring on Mother Irene for what purpose? Do you want to talk about that, Christine?
1: Absolutely. So they normal, as you, as you pointed out, it's, it's rare if ever, I don't know if they've ever spoken to the media like this in years. So this is very special. And, you know, I, I told mother, Irene I was doing this and, um, that I could use her support because it's been hard. It's been hard for me to be here and, and you know, try to advocate for them without, you know, without people understanding. And so she she agreed to come on, and and that's a very brave and courageous thing to do. Oh, I want to tell you one more thing, Lindsay. Um, okay, understand this. When if you want to speak to somebody that's in a high demand group, you can't talk negative about their religion. You can't feel, you can't speak evil about their cherished prophet. So I don't do that. And I mean, I would recommend that to anybody who's trying to, you know, make contact with people that are inside one of the um one of the groups, if they still have family members in there, um, you know, tell them that you want to speak to them, but you're not gonna you're not gonna badmouth their leader or th- or their religion. You just wanna share love. So I don't do that with Irene. I don't talk about Warren, you know. I mean, I will let her talk about him and tell me who, you know, why she believes in him or whatever. And if if I, but I just don't say anything negative back because that would be offensive and it would it would hurt our trust and I, and that's not that's not my role. So the the FLDS believe in a totally different warrant than the media and the public and and the courts know. So, so just understand that they have just lots and lots of stories that support their belief in him that are, you know, that make him seem like a wonderful human being. And so while we think they're irrational, they have their own, you know, their own experiences and they don't know, they don't know what the media says and
0: completely. And this is so important too, and this is why I'm glad you're bringing this up because you and I have been around this, this sort of uh, business, if you can call it that, long enough to understand that there are effective ways to have conversations and there are ineffective ways to have conversations.
1: Right. And, and so, so that's the reason I ranted for a minute about choice. You know, there's a difference between choice and free choice. And, you know, we judge people for not just walking away or not coming out. And the way that I see it is I view these people as people to love. I view them as vulnerable people, you know. Whether whether you think they're hurt by their religion, or you think they're hurt by this eviction, or you think they're hurt by something else, we all agree this population is being hurt. So if we see them as vulnerable people that need hope, and they need, you know, they need they need love, they need support, then you know we can we can build these bridges, and that's that's why. Irene was willing to speak with you because she became convinced of your sincerity and you know, she knew you weren't going to be speaking against her prophet because you know, I mean, I did, a, I did a lot of footwork behind the scenes to, um, to set this up and she was so excited after meeting you and to feel heard, you know, and to feel, um, to feel validated. And I, and I, if I could say anything a thousand times, I would say this. Regardless of, of, of the negative things that you have heard that have, that have happened, these people cry. You know, they, I've had, I've seen so many tears. They cry. They cry about the evictions. They cry about lost family members. They cry. And like, like you said about the otherness. Um, we've got, we've got, we've got to see them as beautiful people. Okay, so the interesting thing about meeting Irene is that at first, you know, I mean, it takes time to build trust, and but it was built to the point where I was even able to go inside her home, and so was my husband. You know, I always thought that they had these big walls and these secret things going on, but but since then, I've been into a been in a number of homes, and they're they're clean and they're filled with educational materials and they're very much like Mormon homes. And it was like amazing, you know, they play piano and they, um, they do, they do family plays and they do, um, you know, they have their own funny little family traditions and they make their own homemade family videos. And it was, um, um, it was really an eye opener that I don't, you know, I don't see them anymore as, you know, as the other, you know, I see them as just, um, especially, you know, I mean, especially Irene, she's such a strong independent thinker, you know, and, and she's a faithful member of the FLD FLDS church. Don't get me wrong. And, you know, and I know our children and they're incredible and it's just completely different than, than I expected when I move here. And so I do have a lot of, a lot of compassion for them as people, and I just don't want to see this population hurt anymore.
0: Well, I appreciate you giving us the opportunity to do this. Like you said, it hasn't been done before. And um, you've done a lot of work and sacrificed a lot for this, so we're going to bring Irene on and let her tell some stories about her, her experience um, in the FLDS
1: right and she she'll be here in a minute but I just want you to know that when she comes I'm gonna go someplace else so that she can speak freely just to you and you can ask her whatever you want and you know she's um she's so awesome and I mean and they're all awesome I, I'd love to introduce all of you to all these amazing people
0: okay so I'd like to Welcome our special guest today. Uh, her name is Mother Irene, and she is an active believing member of the FLDS. Irene, can you say hello? Hello. Now, Irene, I have to ask you, is is the term, do you guys use the term active? That's an LDS term. Is it also an FLDS term?
2: I I guess it can be. We just consider ourselves FLDS. I guess, yeah, active would be a good word
0: for it, but we don't say that to each other. We just know. So you're either FLDS or you're not FLDS. It's just kind of okay. Right. Well, I'm, I brought you on today because we want to. We're going to air this the episode that we did after this, but we want to kind of get to know you and have you give us some context and tell us some stories of your people. Sort of tell us about who you are, and um, and then we're going to air the second episode that sort of gets into the struggles that you're facing. But I'm hoping people can see you like I see you as a delightful, wonderful person whose family cooks really good bread that I've learned. Right. Um, so why don't we start off? What Do you want to sort of tell us uh, about the your town from your perspective?
2: Okay. Um, I was born and raised here,
0: um, and
2: my family lines go quite far back. I'll just tell you a little bit. Uncle Roy is Leroy Johnson. He was one of the first homesteaders in the area. Not the first, but one of the first, and his homestead was the basis of the UEP as we knew it, and um, and that's where it kind of all began. And then others started putting theirs in, also. You know, the Black family and the John T.Here's the Johnson, the Black, and then um, Jessup and Barlow, and those are kind of the basis one basic ones that were there first, and then. Kind of to my day, <laughs> I listened to many stories of my mother telling about the early days in Short Creek, and and um, even my father. He although he came in a little bit later, but he was still there quite early. And um, but so I grew up on the mountains here, hiking and enjoying each other. We knew everybody when I was in. Uh, eighth grade everyone knew everyone's name from in the whole school from first grade to eighth grade we all knew each other by first name and you know it was and I thought it was kind of a big community then (laughs) you know the first grade was probably about 70 or 100 students but it it's a lot bigger. <laughs> it there's was something a lot really
0: beautiful about that. I mean, that reminds me of the LDS ward that I grew up in, you know, all it seemed at the time. I mean, this wasn't true, but it seemed like the, at the time that everybody that lived there was LDS and we all went to the same church and we all knew everyone's families. And we just ran around like little wild wildlings at night playing night games. And, and it sounds like short Creek is a lot like that. Well, it was,
2: um, as I got older, our family was big, a big one. I mean, relatively big. And we pretty much, although we love to bless each other, and it's the whole goal of our existence is to do things to help each other and to bless and to just live close to Heavenly Father and listen to His promptings. But we also like to be close, close in, close in with our family. And as a family group, we go help with other family groups and just try to still keep our Identity as a family, and quite honestly, I I grew up in a really happy family. I only knew my mothers to love each other. Now I I can say now that they there wasn't always just perfect harmony in the family. People have to learn to get along, but they did love each other, and the children loved each other.
0: So I'm um, I'm not going to ask you anything you know too personal or any sort of identifying details, but. Talk to me about some of your happy memories, what the town would do, what the town was like when you were a kid.
2: Okay. Um, We could walk back and forth because not all the mothers lived in the same houses. So we would go to someone, you know, a different mother's house sometimes. And we could walk through town knowing we were perfectly fine. I remember walking clear across town when I was six and probably even younger. but And I was fine. If it was getting dark, I had to hurry because I didn't want to be, you know, without any light. But I wasn't afraid of any kind of danger in the dark. And I think I, I remember being together with my siblings and we would have our our um, family activities where we would watch slideshows or we would sing together or we would have a little birthday gathering or a sibling, or a mother, or someone in the family, and then sometimes we would have bigger gatherings when we would have like extended family members come over. But not a lot of those. There were there were some, but more and more we've kind of moved away from those, surely because we don't want to be pinpointed out in a group and uh, bothered right now. But
0: so singing seems music is such an important part of your culture and your belief system. Can you talk to me about music because even, um, you know, many people can get on the internet and access YouTube videos of, uh, I don't know what the term, we would call it in LDS Church primary songs, which means children's songs. But it's its clear it's a very big part of your culture too.
2: Absolutely. It is. It's very big. And we love it. We encourage all of our children to at least learn to play the piano. But many of them play play the violin. That has become very big. And they continue to. There's many that play the brass instruments, the woodwinds. I mean, in our family alone, we have almost every instrument. (laughs) Right now, they're really getting into mandolins and accordions. (laughs) I mean, although many of them still do the violin and, and play the piano. And they love to sing. And the primary songs from the LDS Church are some of the basic songs we use. We like to make up our own music and put our own words in. And, you know, change it just a little bit so it fits our family and our situation and our people that we love to sing.
0: You showed me, I was lucky to, when I was there, you were able to show me some of the songs that your own family has written and put put photos to. And it was really sweet. I think you guys, your children had made a gift for the family and and just written poems and they're so talented. Uh, that That's another thing. So because... You can't use the internet. People assume that you don't use media, but that's not true.
2: No, we we love to get our get to up to our computers and work, and we do. Um, we know how to run a computer for sure. We want the best. I have sons that one son came to me one day and said, "I can't let you go throughout life without a good computer." He says, "Mother, I'm going to buy you the best laptop," and he <laughs> went out and got one for me one day, I, and it was very nice, and I use it all the time now.
0: Yeah, so we have, you know, the outside world has all of these strange misconceptions because, you know, in the modern technological age, if someone doesn't use the internet, we just don't know what to do with that anymore. So uh, talk to us about what, how you guys spend your time. What, What is an average day like? And, and I know every family is a little bit different. So um, you can speak generally because, of course, just like an any other neighborhood families do things a little bit differently. You can't say that just because you do this, that means all your neighbors do.
2: Exactly. Usually we're we're up early. We like to get up early and have a family class where we listen to the words of our prophets, Uncle Roy and Uncle Rulin, and you know, and read the Book of Mormon together and any other of the standard works. We'll choose a book and go through it and then go on to another one. Wait, um, I
0: have to ask you though, because as an LDS woman trying to get people up for family prayer with just three kids, how do you guys do it with 10 or 8 or 13 or how, how do you manage that?
2: We have big brothers and sisters that help because there's no way I could do it either.
0: Yeah, that's an impressive feat for sure. So you do, you start off with like a family, would you call it family prayer?
2: Yes. We our family class. And, you know, and we have our breakfast and then get about our day, whether it's taking the children to school or going to work or, you know, just starting the day
0: for the mother that's at home, taking care of the home. So let's talk uh, about that a little bit, because um, whenever I go and I speak about fundamentalism, people ask me about women and if women are subjugated. And, and certainly, you know, we've talked about some of the negatives that, that can happen. But in a lot of ways, plural marriage can free up your time, right? It can allow you to take turns. And I, I talked to a family down there who um, uh, his his mothers would have, they would have, one would be on laundry day uh, on Mondays and then Tuesdays she would be cooking and then Wednesday she was watching the kids and they sort of got to alternate. So can you kind of talk about how women are helping other women?
2: That's just how you said it. That does happen a lot that way. Sometimes we will change our schedule. I know when I was going to college, to the university, um, my sister-wife took care of the children. And there was no way I could go to college, get my education, and come back and go to work without her help and the other ladies' help, because I wouldn't have had anybody to watch the children. And they were so loving to them. There is no comparison, because these children grew up with that mother also. They love her as much as they love me, In each one that's come after, they really do love them, and they take care of them as their own.
0: Yeah, I've heard that when it comes to mothers especially, it's like an abundance of love, right? You know, um, I, I have yet to meet anyone who grew up in a plural family, whether they've left the church or not, that doesn't love their mothers.
2: Yes, it is. And if you have a problem with one, there's several others to go and talk to until you get over it, and then you learn. You know, where your weaknesses were and get to go back and make it right with them without
0: all the damage. Okay, but if I were a kid, this is what I would do. I would go ask you one thing, and if you told me no, I'd go ask another mother.
2: (laughs) Does that happen? (laughs) Yep. Oh, yeah. That's real. And it does happen. It continues to happen. But you have to have enough communication between the mothers that you can, you know, live above what the children are doing to you or with you. And it's kind of a game they play, but, you know, we've learned it.
0: What happens, what happens, there's so many horror stories about plural families. What happens when mothers don't get along? Or is there anything that women can do if, they, if they're if they miserable in their lives?
2: Yes. Um. When we had more of our leadership here, they could go talk to them, and they really did get a lot of help. And I know that for a fact with my own sisters and brothers and, their families, and and even in my own family, if there's a challenge, you can go to your bishop, you can go to the prophet if he's available, you know, and go talk to them. And they are very understanding, very loving, and very helpful. And if it really is something you can't reconcile, I've seen ladies move out into a separate home and just live that way if they needed to. Now, usually we want to be together. That's most of our most of us want that goal, but not everybody can live right there together.
0: Yes, yeah, so that's what I was gonna ask because I got a tour of, you know, Joseph Muster's home in downtown Salt Lake City and saw where Rutland grew up and, and things like that. And my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding that in Salt Lake people were kind of living separately and then they wanted to bring everyone together again. And so that was part of the reason that they moved down to the creek. Is that is that correct? to have families all in the same house?
2: Um, It might have been part of it. I don't exactly know. I know when they moved down that they moved together, but there were a lot of homes in Salt Lake that had the families all together. So much so that the homes, when they tried to sell them, were not very valuable to the people up there because they were made for us. Kind of like the big homes now that are being taken. They aren't very valuable to little families.
0: Yeah, and that, and that's certainly something we're going to talk about in the next ones because it is true when you go down to the creek the homes are what would you say on average like 5 or 6000 square feet minimum? Yeah, minimum. Yeah, and and tons of bedrooms and it's it's interesting to think about just one family living living there. I I mean, I couldn't do it. I couldn't keep it all clean. So, it's certainly uh what is it like if you have a large plural family? Is it better to have everyone in the same home? I've heard different things. What What is the FLDS philosophy? Well, my
2: personal, I mean, you can go to each one, but my personal feelings is I want to live in the same home with all my sister wives and, you know, be under our father and under the priesthood umbrella. And I want to just live where my children can have support and love from each other and all their parents.
0: So do, do FLDS women work outside the home? Oh, yes.
2: I worked for years and continue to work outside the home. But I don't do as much as I used to. But uh, just because I wanted to be home with my children, that now some of the others are going out and working as I continue to raise my children. Yes, we do. We work. We have to. We have to have a paycheck. We've got to pay the bills.
0: Yeah. And and we're going to talk about the money situation, too, because there's all of these these funny misconceptions about FLDS women. Why do you think why do you think that there's such a misunderstanding? Do you think it goes to back to, you know, almost a century of negative things being said about those scary polygamists? Or do you think that that it's on purpose? Why, Why do you think that women especially are are sort of judged or pitied?
2: Um, I don't know for sure as far as going back. I mean, yes, we have been persecuted since the time of Nauvoo. I mean, it's just been like a roller coaster up and down and up and down. After the 1953 raid, then of course we had kind of a time of peace where people, and then we have ones that break off from us. And usually that negative feelings that come back to us and the publicity that's so negative usually comes from apostate narratives and you can go to any religion and listen to the apostate narratives and they're really quite similar in my work. Um, I was able to do a little bit of research on that and just because I like to read and uh, it's about it's similar. doesn't yeah. matter who you are.
0: It's just, it's almost human nature, right? The us versus them.
2: Yes. And, you know, and to justify why they left and, and to give themselves a, a feeling of uh, that they did the right thing to leave. And, you know, I'm not saying whether they did or didn't, I'm not them, because they have their reasons. But I still don't think it's right to come back and, and jab at the people you left and hurt them. But it is a human nature thing. You're right.
0: So are you saying that, would you say that the persecution comes more from your own people than it does from, you know, uh, Gentiles, as you'd call them?
2: Yes, I know it comes from our our own who have left. They have a narrative that is repeated and repeated and repeated. If you actually go back and look at everything and it's not even the same people and they're repeating the same stories. They're just a little bit different. Oh, this happened. This man was so mean to me and, you know, on and on. And, where our fathers have been some of the most noble, honorable people in general. I mean, there are still bad people and they have to be sent to the law or whatever they need to be sent out. But now, the, the fathers and the men, I expect my sons to be very good and loving fathers. I see that in them. They've been good sons. They've been sweet boys.
0: Yeah, there's, there's also this FLDS narrative that um, sorry, that there's this narrative about the FLDS that FLDS are trying to get rid of boys. What do you think about that?
2: I think that's silly because I know <laughs> I have several sons. I, I have quite a few. And um, every one of them are still here. Some of them are into their 20s, into their mid and late 20s. And they are, they want to be, they don't live here because they have to go out and work, but they come home and they see me, they talk to me, and a lot of their friends are gone. But they are not gone because they were shoved out. They are gone because they chose to go. Very few were actually told to go away, but those are the ones that were out harming others.
0: Yeah, and in your community, like I th- I would say all Mormon communities right now are experiencing this sort of divide, right? And, and in your guys' case, it's particularly painful because when people leave or ch- are kicked out, sent away, choose to leave, they don't interact with their family anymore, right?
2: That is true. But I, I have to be really careful with the word kicked out because I don't feel like it's kicked out. Sometimes, I mean, we, we ask them, please go away and don't come back because what you've done is so harmful. Just don't come back. But we will help them, of course, get established somewhere else. So we don't really kick them out. And I know that I'm sure, I mean, I don't know, I don't listen to the news, but I'm sure that's a misconception, and that's another. It's a narrative of someone that had some something they need to work through and grieve over and go forward.
0: To, yeah. to clarify, so how you explain it to me and tell me if I'm getting this wrong is um, you are doing it more out of self-protection. From your perspective, it's a way to protect the faith, um, protect your 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 own family that's still in from persecution. Is that right? And More than just
2: persecution, if people are sent out, usually they were grossly immoral and they were hurting their own children or brothers and sisters. That is one of the number one reasons that they are told, go away. I guess, like I said, kicked out is kind of a hard...
0: Do the FLDS do excommunications like the LDS church?
2: Yeah, that is. That is an excommunication when you're told to go and okay. do not come back.
0: I, I'm trying to understand because the XFLDS don't like to talk to me about this stuff too much, but in the LDS Church when when you're excommunicated, you lose your all of your endowments and your ordinances basically are sort of nul, null and void. So I don't know if that's similar.
2: It is similar, and there are those that have been asked to go away, repent of the sins that you have committed that are forgivable. And many can come back. In fact, many of our fathers have been sent away for a while, and they did come back. I'm a witness to that, very much so. And they come back, and they're living right there with their families now. They're taking care of them, and they're very honorable, sweet, and loving people. These men are are absolutely strong
0: well, thank you for talking to me about that because I know that that's so, sort of something that you're judged for a lot. Let's talk about um, some of the the strengths of your community. I have to say, one of the things that impresses me the most—I think I told you about this—about the FLDS is how hard you all work. You're not a lazy people, um, and I'm trying to figure out as a mother how you do this, how you get all your kids, even the ones that struggle to fall in line and just work so hard from a young age. Tell me her secrets.
2: We work with them. And if we can't handle a big group, we break it into smaller groups and have an older sibling work with them. Another mother that doesn't have as many children will take more children into her group and do a project. We work with them and we show them and bless them and be right there helping them understand what needs to happen and what needs
0: to not happen. Do you know any lazy FLDS? Is there such a thing?
2: (laughs) Well, if they are, they usually take themselves out because they didn't want to live up to the work ethic. So I, I don't know why they wouldn't because it gives you such fulfillment. It's lasting happiness in your soul to know that you worked hard and you helped someone else.
0: So let's talk about some of the ways that you guys work together as a community. So one of the things that you guys, I don't know if you still have them. Do you still have your Saturday work projects?
2: Um, I guess you could call it that. It's kind of quiet because we don't like people to come watch us. <laughs> Tell yeah, us about that so first,
0: out. too. So this is a misconception. Um, the reason why people would see you as secretive. Explain to us why that is.
2: Well, we don't want others coming in, especially reporters that are going to misrepresent us. We don't want them to come to our groups and uh, where we're working and take pictures and and try to talk to us because it just it distracts us from our work. And we don't want the apostates to see that we're building on a house because inevitably, if we fix up a home and they see that, they will evict that home within a very short time.
0: And when did the eviction start? Was that in just the last few years? I should know this, but I don't know the exact date.
2: They've been going on all along. Clear, I mean, 10, however many years ago, they've been going on all along. It it was quite a few for a while there, and then it, it kind of slowed down. And I heard that through after the flood that it was supposed to have stopped for about six months, that as far as I recall, it didn't stop. It just wasn't, maybe it wasn't quite as many, but even... When we were out searching for the body of that little man, and the last one in the flood, we were having evictions happening during that week. Oh, wow. And that was heartbreaking. That was very hard because we had so many people here helping us, but they couldn't see that behind their back was someone getting kicked out of their home and 15 people were homeless.
0: And talk to us about that. You know, this was this was hard for me to witness when I was down there, as he, as you and and others showed me their town, your town. It kind of, I mean, I I guess it should have occurred to me because I've talked to people who have left and they have a similar story. But you you guys have roots that go back generations into this town, right? Your family helped build this town,
2: right? In two of my family lines, I I could go back five generations. You know five or six, so yeah, we go back, and, and not only that, we go back clear to Nauvoo, the time of Nauvoo. Um, and we have extended family that we don't even know living in all the surrounding communities. We're all related, whether we like it or not. You know, we're but, probably
0: related if we go back far enough,
2: too. Yeah, really, yeah, because if you have any Barlow, Jessup, uh, Jeff's, any of that in your line, you'll, you'll see.
0: Do do you guys draw strength from pioneer narratives? Because I know that those those are very important to me as an LDS woman. Um, pioneer stories are what I draw strength from. So what kind of stories do you guys tell when you're being persecuted or feeling really low? What what picks you back up?
2: Most of the time we talk about the raids that have happened on our community and especially the 1953 raid. And my mother talks about what happened to her and you how the they came in and and they all sang the songs at the schoolhouse and the hymns as the police officers pulled up and told them they were all under arrest and you know and to see the strength and the love and the the determination to go forward and be who they are still and live up to what they feel is right.
0: So you guys get a lot of, I mean, the, talk about the raids because. The raids are important to you. And, and I want listeners to understand that persecution, when you're persecuted like this, it doesn't drive you apart. It it drives you closer together, right?
2: Well, it, there's no way that it can otherwise. If, because once you you all feel like it's against you as a whole or, you know, and our people as a whole, we're going to hold on to each other and say, come on, we'll help each other. We're going to go forward together. I'll encourage you and you encourage me. And we'll do what's right. I mean, it doesn't mean that we always make perfect choices in everything. And sometimes we'll even have a sister or a brother say, "Why are you doing that?" And you'll have to rethink it and say, "Oh, you know that that probably isn't good for what we need right now." You know, but as a group, we just we love to remind each other of who we are and that we're striving to live so that. We can be under priesthood and with our prophet again soon, we hope. We always pray for that and, and we believe it can happen.
0: Do you want to it's, talk about your leaders and how that makes you feel or should we not go there? I'll do a little bit. Okay. Talk um, about what you're comfortable with. and Okay. Um, Uncle
2: Roy, as we all affectionately called him, he was our prophet for 40 somewhat years, I don't recall. And... Many of us grew up, and then Uncle Rulin was about, I think, 16 years that he was our prophet. Very, very sweet man, very sweet, and you wonder why they had a lot of ladies. Those ladies loved them. They were so beautiful. Their soul, their their being, they were just very sweet people, and, um, and then Uncle Warren has been the very same, and I know that. There's been a lot said about him that isn't right. and why would a person with such love be treated that way? I don't know, other than there's some people that have a lot of vindictive hatefulness, but I don't want to go into all that. I just sure. want to say that that he just has a whole whole group of people that still absolutely love and pray for him daily, if not
0: hourly. And do you have do you see a lot of similarities between him and early church leaders? Absolutely. Yes. I know
2: that the Prophet Joseph went through a lot of persecution. He was jailed. He was beaten. He was poisoned. And he was misrepresented every turn of the way. And yes, Uncle Warren has had that. And it was from the very people that were next to him, the very people that loved him at one time. That's where it came from. And this is exactly what's happening today.
0: Yeah, I did. I didn't think about that, but it's it's true with with uh, Uncle Warren, as you call him. A lot of his what first counselors and second counselors have left, or I don't know what you would call it, but certainly it there are parallels. I can definitely see that. That makes sense. Um. So, so you guys, in a way. I mean, we call you Mormon fundamentalists, right? Because you're living the fundamentals of Mormonism. But in a way, you're also sort of living out the early Mormon story.
2: We are. And and we can see that, too. And we have hope. But at the same time, there's a hope deep in our heart. But at the same time, I guess I would like to say on behalf of my me and my people is that we're hoping people will. Look at us in a kinder light. Um, Maybe think before they listen to any news representation, especially of the general news, you know, the media out there. Look deeper. And we do love people out there. I have some very dear friends that are not part of us. They never have been, and I, I don't try to make them be because they are who they are. And they can listen to me on their level, but it's really hard to get past that level for people to understand that we are just just a religious group in this country that's supposed to be free, that's supposed to have constitutional rights to be able to live our religion. Now, if we are taken to court or anything, which happens a lot lately and uh, the last, I don't know, 20 years, but pretty much right now, if, if an FLDS is taken to court, they have no rights it almost inevitably will go against them. And that's kind of hard to say that, though it's very true.
0: No, and and I can certainly back that up. I mean, I've talked to even with people who have left, who have been in custody battles or something, and the judge will, and, and this isn't always the case. There are certainly stories to go against what I'm saying, but Where judges will say, we're not going to give the kids to you because of where you live and where you're from. There's this automatic sort of stigma, which I've really been trying to work against. Because for me, I've learned that plural families are just as valid as a monogamous family. And sometimes they function a lot better. I mean, plural families solve some of the problems that monogamy has for women. And and it's not something that a lot of people like to talk about because it kind of, you know, it goes against the cultural norm. But that's the Mormon story, right? That's the FLDS are very peculiar people. Do you do you take peculiar people as a thing of pride? Because in the LDS church, we call ourselves a peculiar people, but we're really sort of striving to be mainstream. So we have this tension between being, quote unquote, normal and staying peculiar.
2: Um. I actually feel like it's it's a, an honor to be peculiar. I I would rather be that. I'm happy with the F.L.D.S. name. It actually began in Uncle Roy's time, although we didn't use it a lot. In Uncle Roland's time, we used it a lot, and of course now we do. But no, I I like being different. I'm just fine with it. I grew up with it. I live with it. I I remember going into St. George one day as a young lady, a young teenager, and. Sometimes people were kind of mean to us, but it didn't really bother me. And some boys were coming down the road in their car and they yelled, Plig! <laughs> you know, and I just laughed. My friend standing there by me was just mortified. And I just laughed and
0: waved at him and said, hi. Yeah. And and that's like the Mormonism that I really value, right? And, and, and one thing that I've noticed about FLDS women is you're tough as nails, uh, a lot tougher than me, especially when we went hiking. And you can do things in a dress. I can't do in pants. So there's that. And you're really resilient. I think you're used to being stared at and pointed at. And um, talk to me about that. What's that like going out and having everybody sort of whisper and point?
2: The thing that I do the most is smile at them because it doesn't really bother me. I've had ones be
0: rude, too. What do people say when they're rude?
2: Uh, it was when I was going to the university, and I had another student ask me if uh, my husband had more than one life. And I don't usually lie about it. I just said, yeah. And he started making really rude comments about our intimate life. And I mean, who I just- does that? Nobody
0: does that to a monogamous couple, right? They don't go ask them questions about their intimate life. That's so strange to me.
2: Yeah, and I just looked at him and... Gave him kind of the look and walked away. And I think some of the other students there got after him. But I just kind of avoided him. I didn't need him to be where he was. He had his problem. If he had, if he could have thoughts like that, that's his problem.
0: Well, it certain, certainly wouldn't be the first time men say derogatory things to women that they don't know. So <laughs> um, so that's the other thing that we talk about on the next episode. We talk about schooling. Um, a lot of FLDS women are educated. Some with advanced degrees.
2: Oh, definitely. We have a lot of advanced degrees, and the men are too. And, you know, we have master's degrees all over the place here. And, you know, a lot of um, just the the main degrees of the teachers. There's a lot of teachers, and they're just bachelors, but, and there's nurses, and there's then there's all the, um, what do you call it, vocational training or... I don't know. There's CNAs and there's um, accountants with associate de- degrees and some higher. There's a lot of training and it continues on probably a smaller scale than it used to, just because we don't we don't know what's going to happen next. So we will either do it, have someone help us do it on the internet, or just take real quick classes that only last for a little bit of time because we don't know where we're going to be or what's going to happen next. It, it In a way, someone says you're like living like gypsies, but I guess so. But this is the home that my children grew up in. And we don't know if tomorrow will be, held. well, somebody wanted that home and find out that it sits there for a month or two or a year or so after they take it. But, you know, they tell us that. It's-
0: yeah, no, so- I can't imagine the instability that that must feel. Do you, do you want to talk about, Sort of the pain that your people is feeling right now with your leadership, you know, sort of scattered and your people being scattered. What's what's that like for you?
2: Very painful. It it hurts. It's
0: deep. It's
2: we our whole support system, but is not. It's not what it was. Take for instance the schools. We've had we have ten schools, or we did seven of them have been evicted of course and and um, i guess three the other three are up for eviction that's a kind of but i had a friend look it up and she says what are these and they were the three schools that still have students in them that they are said these are available for anyone <laughs> you know i guess it's on their the fake UAP website or whatever you want to call it but anyway so we have all these children that are coming here to come to school, they're going to these last few schools or into homes that have a little homeschools in it. Some of these are driving from miles away every day to make sure these children are getting their schooling. And some of the mothers work in Hurricane or St. George or even here in town and they'll go to work and then come back and pick up their children and and go back to whatever surrounding communities, Cedar, Parowan, um, some are over in Littlefield. Some are over in Knab. Some are over in Page. I don't know. There's a lot of area that's covered here with people from here, and and it hasn't been easy. I I have a a friend. We call him sister too, but we that uh has been looking for a home, and every turn of the way, she things just aren't working out, and she's anxious to get a home. And another one who did have a home that she was going to move into and then was told, the lady told her that she couldn't, could not rent it to her because of who she was. So, you know, it's really hard and it's hard to see people have to go out there and not have a support system. If I need to go somewhere in a hurry, say, my little boy got hurt and I need to take him to the ER. Then I have someone I can call and say, hey, come over and be with the children. Let's work together on this, you know, or or call up their older sister or, or brother and say, you know, get home right now and come help. But right now we're actually scattering. And even mothers in the same family have to go different directions because there are not homes big enough for us. They're not made for our type of families.
0: And we'll talk about this, too, on the second episode a little bit. It's it's such a complicated and painful issue. And, and I think that we do a good job. And. We're going to give some more context to that. But while, while I have you on this, maybe, maybe talk to us. Tell us um, something that you wish outsiders would know or w- what you'd like to share about your people. I think we did that a little bit on the next episode, too. It's so weird that that one's going to be posted second because we did it first. So I hope that's not too confusing.
2: Well, um, just know that we are very loving and, and kind people. Um, If we seem like we won't talk to you, it's because we're concerned for the safety of our children and our family and our people. And we don't know if you're coming in to hurt us or if you are sent to do something you shouldn't. Uh, Say, like we've had private investigators and stuff come in and think they're really clever. We can tell when you're an outsider. It doesn't matter if you try to dress like us or not. And we can also tell if you are turning away and apostatizing from us. And outsiders can't tell but as much as we can because we know what they were like before, you know, what it was like before. But I just want them to know that we love all of our people. We love all of our families, even the ones that have left. And you know, I'm sure I said that before, but we do love them. We just can't have them come in and hurt us. It hurts too much we've been through enough and enough is enough let's just stop the evictions let us have our homes give back what's rightfully ours and let us go on living we need a life without such turmoil we need our children to grow up secure and safe just as anyone would like their children to
0: I'm, I'm just trying to think of what we can leave people with. Do you want Do you want to share anything about your faith here? Are you comfortable? Or is that maybe putting some pearls before swine? Yeah, that would be a little bit touchy, all right? So maybe don't do that. Maybe you can just see what you find. Val- can you explain what you find valuable in your community that you want to preserve?
2: What I find valuable in my community in our, um, is that we have a network uh people we certainly need our leaders back we need them where we have easy access and not have everyone looking over our shoulders to find them uh we need that support system we need our spiritual guidance as much we do reach to heavenly father and we do love it and want to do it he wants but he also gave us some leaders that aren't able to be right here among us right now um we need to have our home, our homes safe. We need to keep our families safe. We made a lot of large, tall fences, just in an effort not to necessarily to hurt people or make them wonder what we're doing, but to keep our our families safe. And there's a lot of good side effects to that too. Yeah. Not to be funny, but hey, it made us not have as many weeds in the garden. We can grow our gardens a lot better, you know. <laughs> but but we do. We do want our families safe. They are so important—our children, our grandmothers, the people we love. We want them to feel secure. And you know, and I'm at the part of my life where I can stand up and and help the younger ones and the older ones. And I want that help when I'm older. I want to know that I'm secure. You know, maybe that's kind of a selfish way of thinking, but I do want to be secure when I'm an old you know, lady and I have all my grandchildren there. But we do we need our leaders, we need our loved ones, and we need our homes in our town.
0: Well, Irene, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to come on and do this and also giving us some trust. So um, we're hoping that everyone, like I say, in the other episode is a good steward of that trust. And can people come into town and shop at your store and interact with you? Is that something that You guys welcome, or is it something that you're uncomfortable with?
2: We are very welcoming that way. It is just fine. There's only a few left, a few of the businesses that are actually ours. um, That would be the dairy store and the little produce uh, place, we call it. And it's kind of a little bit off the beaten path, but, you know, if you ask at the dairy store where it is, they'll tell you. And, yeah, we welcome. It's public the people out in Centennial and the ones that have moved back into the town that aren't part of us, they all know where it is, you know, but yeah, we welcome them in. We never had a problem with outsiders coming to our businesses when when the town was booming with our businesses and it truly was. I wish I could give you pictures of what the street looked like on Central Street when the town was booming.
0: I would actually love to see those pictures if you have any. Uh, I'm gonna look around, and
2: see what I can find. But you know, the store CMC when it was up and running in Full State, there wasn't a spot in the parking lot or anywhere around that you could park. You had to park out on the street.
0: Well, yeah, I would. Lo- I would love to see that. I'm particularly interested in the history of the town. So, and I and I appreciate you coming on and, and taking time to do this. If it's all right, I'm going to ask people to leave questions and respectful questions in the comment section. And then um, maybe down the road, we'll see if we want to answer them and do another interview or something, if you're okay with that. I think that would work. Okay, so um, again, thanks for coming on. Is there anything else you want to leave us with?
2: Just thank you for all those that are loving and caring. And we have some very dear friends that are outsiders that are right here among us right now. Uh, very few, but and I sure appreciate you, Lindsay, because you were so open minded when I first met you. I just thought, wow, another one that I can actually trust.
0: You know what? So, there's there's okay. a lot of good folks out there. Um, Christine will share it with you. I put a I put a call on my Facebook page and said, hey, if you could say something positive, a positive message to FLDs, what would you say? And there are over 120 comments right now of very lovely things that I think Christine is going to print off for you to read
2: oh how very kind thank you to all those that gave them and thank you for helping us and i just can't say thank you enough to everybody that's been kind and reached out to us and understood where we're coming from and we don't want to hurt anyone we only want to help and um but we don't want to still keep getting our homes pulled out from under us
0: that's kind of our bottom line right now yeah that seems reasonable Well, thanks again, Irene, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.